Ezekiel chapter 43. It's a lengthy chapter, but this in its entirety. Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel 43, here in the Word of God, Ezekiel, the 43rd chapter. <clears throat> Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the, his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple, while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. For I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings, by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost, with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. <clears throat> now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangements, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. These are the measurements of the altar in cubits. A cubit is one cubit and a handbreadth. The base one cubit high and one cubit wide with a rim all around its edge of one span. This is the height of the altar. From the base on the ground to the lower ledge, two cubits. The width of the ledge, one cubit. From the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits. And the width of the ledge, one cubit. 
The altar hearth is four cubits high, with four horns extending upward from the hearth. The altar hearth is 12 cubits long, 12 wide, square at its four corners. The ledge, 14 cubits long and 14 wide in its four sides, with a rim of half a cubit around it. Its base, one cubit all around, and its steps face toward the east. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is made, for sacrificing burnt offerings on it and for sprinkling blood on it. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites, who are of the seed of Zadok, who approach me to minister to me, says the Lord God. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge, and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. Then you shall also take the bull of the sin offering and burn it in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering. And they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. When you offer them before the Lord, the priests shall throw salt on them, and they will offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Every day for seven days you shall prepare a goat for sin offering, they shall also prepare a young bull and a ram from the flock, both without blemish. Seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it, and so consecrate it. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day and thereafter that the priest shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar I will accept you, says the Lord God. Well, my friends, today, as we look at Ezekiel 43, and with comparison to 1 Corinthians 5, we see that the Lord instructs his church to protect the Lord's table from unworthy participation in it. The Lord instructs his church to protect the Lord's table from unworthy or inappropriate participation in it. As we've in the past studied the doctrine of the sacraments, we know that sacraments are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Signs, they're symbols, they're also seals. They seal this, the the grace, to our hearts. They are sensible signs. That is to say, they appeal to our senses. These, we don't have a lot of sensible signs. The sacraments are they. In the new covenant, these are, we don't have sacrifices anymore. We don't burn incense anymore. The sacraments are the ones that are these sensible signs. We can We can see them, we can feel them, we can touch them, and so forth. They are sensible signs that are means of grace, means of blessing, 
to represent, seal, and apply to believers Christ and the benefits of the new covenant. Now, you know, there are some things that are caught and some things that are taught. Many times we simply do those things which God has ordained for our worship. And so we catch, as it were, by means of the performance of the singing and and the preaching of the word and so forth, how God is to be worshipped. But other times it is important to explain why we do what we do. And so we could think of, for example, the content of worship song or the question of musical instruments. Pastor Work, about a year ago, some months ago, preached on Psalm 150 on the whole issue of instrumentation. Or explain why a minister administers the sacraments rather than having just somebody off the street doing it. Or the whole issue of baptism in terms of the way in which we baptize and who should be baptized. Or, as today, why we administer the Lord's Supper the way that we do. This is what is called elder-controlled communion. Why do we do that? Why do we have communion tokens or communion cards? Why do we have people come forward and so forth to sit around the table uh, but particularly to invite those who have, been in, who have been approved by the elders. So that's what we're addressing today. So hang in there with me as we deal with this. Now the first point today is what is meant by fencing of the table. That's the technical term, the fencing of the table. Well, first of all, fencing of the table, of the Lord's table, involves proper instruction. That's why we sometimes preach sermons on the meaning of communion. What does it mean? What exactly is being symbolized here? Well, of course, the the bread symbolizes the body of Jesus. The blood symbolizes his blood. The, The wine symbolizes his blood. But even deeper than that, there's there's also a significance in terms of the body, the fact that Jesus gave himself body and soul for us. That's being symbolized by the bread, but the wine then symbolizes his sacrifice, symbolizes his his taking our sin upon himself so that he pays the penalty for that sin. So he cries from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so the bread and the wine symbolizing the body and blood of Jesus. Well, here today in Ezekiel 43, we see this principle of instruction with regard to the ordinances, with regard to the worship that is being offered. That's that's how the prophet is being told to instruct the people. In a time of spiritual decline, but also in anticipation of future glory as you go towards the end of Ezekiel, the future glory, the prophet is told to instruct the people with regard to these divine ordinances. In verse 11, notice verse 11 here. 
And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, what have they done? They had engaged in sin. They had engaged in iniquity. And they first had to be brought to a sense of their shame. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, if they've gotten to that point, then the prophet is to instruct them. He's to show them, notice what we see here in verse 11, he's to show them the form or the design of the house, says the temple in the New King James, but literally of the house, the design or the form of the house, as well as the fashion thereof. So the word form refers to the model of the temple. I'm sure many of us, perhaps in our younger days, used to build models. Certainly my wife used to build uh, aircraft models. And I'm sure some of us have done cars or other things. And so you, you build a model. Okay? And so that's what that's what the what uh, Ezekiel is to do to show as if it's a model if you will what this is all about in terms of the house in terms of the temple and the fashion thereof this term fashion could refer to the manner of the building and the fitting of each part to the other or it could also refer to the furniture or maybe even the decorative aspect there was a great beauty to the temple that God established for his people. Notice also what it says here, its exits and its entrances, or the goings out thereof and the comings in thereof. In other words, all the alleys, all the gates, all the stairs show to the people all these things. And then again, it says its entire design or all the forms thereof, all those things by which God is to be worshipped, all the forms thereof, all the ordinances thereof, all the statutes, all the laws with regard to the temple. If you look, for example, at the end of the book of Exodus, there very clearly God lays out uh, how the tabernacle is to be and in other places in terms of the temple. And so show it to the people. Make them understand, instruct them, lead them in the way so that they can worship intelligently and properly. All the forms thereof, repeating the prior phrase, and all the laws thereof, all of its ordinances, again, all the rules and regulations, and write it down in their sight so that they may keep the whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. Why write it down? Well, to make sure that there would be no ambiguity or confusion. This was according to previous patterns, as with Moses with regard to the tabernacle and Solomon in terms of the temple. Now, this emphasis of proper instruction is also what we find in the book of 1 Corinthians. And, you know, one of the classic passages for the administration is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians and chapter 11, where Paul gives instructions concerning the Lord's Supper. 
he says that we must discern the Lord's body. We must understand what the sacrament is all about. We must have knowledge of this. And to discern the Lord's body certainly means that we must understand and appreciate and take for ourselves personally who Jesus is and that which Jesus did. And so the fencing of the table, first of all, involves proper instruction so that people know what it is that they're doing and not to come if they don't. But secondly, fencing of the table also entails proper warning. Fencing of the table also concerns proper warning. In Ezekiel 43, there was concern for holiness. And this is obvious from the entire chapter. For example, if you go back to verses 8 and 9, when they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them not in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. In other words, if we have God dwelling in our midst, we're going to be holy, are we not? Notice also in verse 12, notice also in verse 12, this is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. There was to be a holy border round about the top of the mountain. It was a fence, we could say. And look at verse 26 towards the end of the chapter. In verse 26, we see that the Lord ordains that the altar is to be purged and purified. Make atonement for it. Seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and so consecrate it and indeed that the priest shall consecrate themselves. Now if you go on to chapter 44, if you have your Bible open there, look at verse 7 of chapter 44. Chapter 44 verse 7 says, when you brought in foreigners uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, isn't that interesting? So, talking about circumcision in terms of the sacrament, which, of course, replaced my baptism, uncircumcised in flesh, but also uncircumcised in heart, in other words, not being in a right relationship with God, when you brought in foreigners to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house, and when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations." And so chapter 44 then speaks of those who have come into the Lord's house to pollute it. In 1 Corinthians, there was concern for not, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there was concern for not defiling the Lord's table. And then let's look, as we're thinking of 1 Corinthians, let's look at chapter 5. Let's look at chapter 5, which we read today as well. Chapter 5. Notice what Paul says in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, page 1543 in your Bibles. First of all, there was a horrible instance of fornication. It is actually reported that there was sexual immorality 
among you such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. A horrible, horrible occasion of immorality. Verse 2, there was no mourning over this sexual sin. You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Verse 6, Paul says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Just a little bit of that yeast will cause the whole loaf of bread to expand. Just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 7, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. And then he gives examples in uh, verse 11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, claims to be a Christian, who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, someone who speaks uh, uh, proud kinds of words, attacking words, or a drunkard or an extortioner. And so you see... Paul is establishing, Scripture is establishing the principle of holiness in terms of the church and holiness, therefore, in terms of her ordinances. If you turn to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, turn to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 10. In chapter 10 and verses 19 and 20, Paul says, what am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Don't participate, Paul says, in false worship. And verse 21, he goes on to say, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. You can't do that. You can't be with the world and then partake of the Lord's table. And then chapter 11 that we've already made reference to, chapter 11, verse 27, Paul says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of of the Lord. That's a serious matter. As a matter of fact, notice the necessity of self-examination. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Verse 30, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. In other words, many have died. Because they didn't come to the Lord's table properly. They did not discern the Lord's body. Now, in other ordinances in Scripture, there was also concern for holiness. There was to be no leaven during Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is in conjunction with the Passover meal. The sprinkling of blood was to be upon the people. Why? 
because of the idea of being cleansed from sin. And Leviticus 23, verses 26 and following, that passage indicates that the person who is not afflicted will be cut off from among his people. So, fencing of the table involves proper instruction. Fencing of the table entails proper warning. And thirdly, fencing of the table involves proper prohibition of those who should not partake. This is clearly the teaching of Matthew 18 with regard to church discipline, a matter with which we've been dealing recently. 1 Corinthians 5 also tells us this. Verse 11 says, don't even eat with such a person. That is to say, it would certainly mean not only common meals, but particularly the holy meal of the Lord's Supper. Verse 13 says, to put away from the church that person. Ezekiel 44, going back to Ezekiel for a moment, Ezekiel 44 also teaches this. Notice verse 8. Notice verse 8 of Ezekiel 44. You have not kept the char- kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. In verse 14, Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has to be done in it. In other words, there were keepers of the charge of the house. The Lord established those to be keeper of the charge of the house. Verse 9, by the way, verse 9 prohibits the stranger, the uncircumcised in heart, and the uncircumcised in flesh from entering the temple. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. And again, going back to verses 5 through 7. You know, in 1 Chronicles 26, 26, that passage talks about the porters. The porters. You know what a porter is? A gatekeeper. One who, one who um, guarded the gates so that only certain ones could enter. And then there's one more passage in this regard. I want you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 7. It's a very interesting passage. Nehemiah chapter 7, and this is found on page 659. Nehemiah chapter 7, page 659. Nehemiah, of course, is the man who built the wall. And um, um, at that point, then, where you know, the people were being gathered, the captives uh, were returning. Nehemiah 7, verses 64 and 65. These sought their listing, that is to say, these various people sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy. But it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor, the Tershathah, said to them that they should not eat of the most holy till a priest could consult 
with the Urim and Thummim. That is to say, this is a way of discerning God's will. Apparently, it would give yes or no answers to the questions, but there was no Urim and Thummim available at that point. And so until that was true, then these people were excluded from certain privileges. Now, what's interesting here, please note something very interesting. We've talked earlier about 1 Corinthians, those who are not instructed. We've talked about those who are definitely living in sin. And therefore, we've established a principle in terms of excluding such people from coming to the Lord's table. The scripture is clear. But what's interesting about Nehemiah 7 is that the governor prevented priests and families of the priestly line from eating of the holy things, not because they necessarily were not entitled to it, but because they couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove it. So it doesn't mean that these who were prevented from partaking were not of the priestly line. It was that they didn't have the credentials. They could not prove it. And let me also say very clearly that the church, by fencing the table, is not saying that anyone who is not admitted to the table any given time is not a genuine believer. Not saying that at all but just that there are certain requirements that must be met. If you go to the Netherlands, that's a country in Europe, you go to the Netherlands today and you want you go to a church that's observing communion, do you know what you need to bring with you? Your home church. Isn't that interesting? Now they've gotten away from that tradition somewhat. That's the way that they fence the table there, that they guarantee not just that you claim to be a Christian, but that you can demonstrate, that you can prove that you have the proper credentials. This is one of the reasons, of course, why we use communion tokens or communion cards, which, by the way, although predominant perhaps in Presbyterian circles, these are not unheard of in Methodist churches and in Baptist churches, and even in the Scottish Episcopal Church. These are all ways of, of making sure, because of the, the danger that is involved, if someone comes and is not ready to partake, if those who, who eat and drink in an unworthy manner eat and drink judgment to themselves, not discerning the Lord's body. So fencing of the table then involves proper prohibition of those who for whatever reason should not partake. And let, let me also say, just very quickly here, people who don't come to the Lord's table, who might not come or might not be admitted, could be a variety of reasons. Sometimes people are, are wrestling with sin in their lives. And someone who might be formally admitted by the church decides I can't partake today, okay? It's not, it's not a, a judgment in terms of the person's heart at all. It is the responsibility of the church, however, in this regard. One other thing I want to say, just as an aside, if any of you here wants to come, don't fret and, and is not able to today. Don't fret, don't get upset. 
come and talk with us how you can profess your faith and can come and be admitted to the Lord's table. And that leads me, fourthly then, in this regard, in terms of what is meant by fencing of the table, that fencing of the table involves proper invitation. Although there is a fence, it is a fence with a gate. It's a fence with a gate. There's a great Scottish uh, theologian and minister by the name of Rabbi Duncan. I think they said Rabbi Duncan. And once he saw a weeping woman at the Lord's table, and she, she was hesitant to take the bread and the wine. And he said, take it, woman. It's for sinners. Take it, woman. It's for sinners. And so there is a, there's a fence. But my friends, there's also a gate through which we can go. So, having seen then what is meant by fencing of the table, secondly, we want to ask, why do we fence the table? Why do we fence the table? Well, first of all, because the Lord has commanded us to do so. This alone should be sufficient warrant. The officers of the church are first and foremost his servants. We do this because Christ has commanded us to do it in Scripture. Also, as I suggested a moment ago, we want to demonstrate our love to others, for others. It is not loving to allow someone to participate in something that may prove to be fatal. It is not a loving act to refuse a person to come to the table who must personally repent before he is able to have communion with the Lord. That is not love. That is irresponsibility. Thirdly, why uh, do we fence the table? Because we seek to uphold the holiness of the church and its worship. The church needs to be protected. And when there is sin in the camp, everyone suffers. And why do we, why do we fence the table? Because we celebrate the unity of the church. We celebrate the unity of the church. Now, sometimes that unity is seen as when we have in the past and will today admit someone to the table who is not a member of this particular church, but is a member in good standing, active member of some congregation. And so we celebrate the unity of the church, not only in admitting people, but also we celebrate the unity of the church by respecting the discipline of other churches. We recognize the universal nature of the church. This is not our table. It's not the Presbyterian table. It's the Lord's table. And therefore, anyone who's a member of the worldwide body of Christ that is professing the truth, that is maintaining the truth, active member of that, anyone in that situation can apply to us for approaching, for coming to the Lord's table. I have friends here in this area. I have friends who um, are, let's say, Baptist and Anglican ministers. Let's say, just say, that someone from one of their churches 
was excommunicated by that church. Okay? And that person came to us and wanted to come to the Lord's table. What would we do? Well, we would respect the discipline of that other church here in our community. We would, and if we did not do that, we would be showing disrespect to that other company. It would be New Jerusalem Baptist, my friend Ray Beckham, or Drew Henley over at Redeemer Community Church, or whatever congregation that is. Why, why do we fence the table? Because we celebrate the unity of the church and respect the discipline of other congregations. Now thirdly, the question then is, having seen by what is meant by the fencing of the table and why do we fence it, thirdly, how is fencing of the table done? Well, first of all, by instruction in the ordinances. This is what we've done in the past. With time to time, we preached on communion. What would constitute proper instruction? We instruct in terms of the symbols. We instruct in terms of the sacramental action to be observed. Why we do what we do? We break the bread. The bread and the wine are distributed separately, individually. You don't dip the bread into the wine and so forth. The self-examination that is to be encouraged. And the action during and after this holy meal. So, we fence by instructing, just like Ezekiel 43 says. Secondly, we fence by means of verbal warning. First of all, in terms of your faith, are you, are you depending upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Are you? Do you acknowledge that there is no good thing in you? Do you profess that it is by do you profess that you are justified by faith and faith alone? What is your faith? What do you believe? In whom are you trusting? And so we challenge people by means of this verbal warning, don't come unless you are resting upon Christ. And don't come, not only unless you have proper faith, but unless you have proper repentance. Are you living in accordance with the law of God? Let's go through the commandments briefly. First commandment, do you want God? Do you love God? Do you desire God? Is he the king of your life? Second commandment, are you worshiping God as he has ordained? Do you secretly desire that you or the church could devise a man-made way of worshiping him? Or are you committed to purity of worship? What is in your heart? Third commandment, are you respectful of all the ways by which God makes himself known? Are you reading his word and submitting it and submitting to it? As Larry said today in the car, we got to follow the word of God. The fourth commandment, are you keeping the Sabbath day holy? Do you call the Sabbath your delight? Is it your pleasure to attend divine services on the Lord's day? Are you doing your best to refrain from profaning the Sabbath? The fifth commandment, are you doing your duty? 
whether husband, wife, child, are you doing your duty in your social relations? Sixth commandment, do you hold hatred in your heart to a neighbor? Are you engaging in slanderous speech? Seventh commandment, are you keeping pure with regard to sexual matters? Are you resisting temptation? Eighth commandment, are you stealing from others? Or are you robbing God of his time, his money, or his glory? Ninth commandment, are you speaking the truth in all your dealings? Are you refraining from doing that which is dishonest? And tenth commandment, are you coveting anything that is your neighbor's? Are you giving yourself over to material things? Are you jealous of that which someone else possesses? And so we issue a warning in terms of repentance. Are you living in accord with the word of God? And also, are you at peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ? We cannot lawfully partake of this communion meal unless we have genuine communion with others. We are called to be at peace with our fellow believers, but we cannot participate in this token of concord, of peace, unless the reality of peace is there. You know, the TV uh, network PBS, of all things, PBS, some years ago, ran a movie called The Silence at Bethany. The Silence at Bethany, which was a sympathetic look at a Mennonite community in rural Pennsylvania just around the start of World War II. So Mennonites, you know, like the Amish, you know, the Amish people, the Pennsylvania Dutch with the buggies, Mennonites are very similar to that. And so the congregation, very interesting, as portrayed in the movie, The Silence at Bethany, the congregation would not partake of communion till everyone was in fellowship. Toward that end, the minister in charge of the service would walk up the aisle, challenging the flock with the question, are you at peace with God and your neighbor? Are you at peace with God and your neighbor? And so we find not only instruction in the ordinances and verbal warning but also, thirdly, exercising the keys of the kingdom and keeping out those who should not partake, such as by means of discipline. That's why, for example, uh, as you know, recently we suspended someone in this church from the sacraments. And the final step in discipline, as you know, upon lack of repentance is excommunication. But we also keep from membership as the elders, as we turn the keys of the kingdom, as Jesus says in Matthew 18, as we turn the keys of the kingdom, opening that which has been opened in heaven, shutting that which has been closed by heaven. We also keep from membership those who cannot give a believable profession. But how do we fence the table, not only by these things, not only by instruction and verbal warning and exercising the keys of the kingdom, but my friends, also by welcoming those who should come. 
We welcome those who should come. We meet with those who would want to come to the table. And we give an invitation today, as I do as a minister of the gospel today, to those who have been admitted. Now, four points of application. The first is this. Do you appreciate that is a good thing? That a church would care, would care enough about administering the Lord's Supper properly. Do you care? Are you glad for that? Secondly, do you take these matters, including the fencing of the table, seriously? Do you? Thirdly, do you realize that the fencing of the table is a means by which the Lord himself shows his control over this holy meal. When we preach, when we exhort, when we warn, when we admit, we are doing so as the servants of Jesus Christ in accordance with his word. Do you realize that the fencing of the table is a means by which Jesus himself shows his authority over this holy meal? And finally, my friends, do you long for the glory of God, which Ezekiel witnessed at the beginning of chapter 43? Do you long for that? Do you long for that? Behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Do you long for that glory to be manifest? If you do, you need to realize that the only way we're going to see that kind of revival is when we follow the clear scriptural teaching with regard to God's worship and the ordinances, the sacraments which he has ordained. Stand up. And now our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would work graciously and powerfully in our lives and even in this hour would subdue all unrighteous thoughts and enable us to be conformed to the image of thy dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please turn now to Psalm.